ready. Ready. We're <laughs> <laughs> like, I don't know how to start this because welcome not to we're here. Contextualize. Welcome to our second annual yes. General Assembly update. Wow, <laughs> we went on sabbatical. <laughs> And we're back. This is, yeah, anyways. Hey, everybody. Uh, glad that y'all are tuning in. And uh, yeah, we uh, just today we want to give, just kind of talk and share updates and give a little bit of our commentary, I guess, on the General Assembly, which was last week. We did this last year with uh, Bill as well. And I, basically, I wasn't there last year, so I got to kind of interview both of you and learn as I was doing it. But um, yeah, so that's Jim and I are here today to do that. Yeah, we had five of us go down. Or over the down to Birmingham. Yep. It was hot. Dude. It was hot. <laughs> it was um, but very it, hot. Yeah, but it was awesome. I mean, yeah, so one of the good. things, we kind of have bullets that we thought we'd walk through just as our congregation sends us as commissioners. So let me explain a little bit about the General Assembly. Uh, a church our size is given a certain number of commissioners we're allowed to send. Um, of course, commissioners need to be elders in the church who have been nominated installed, trained, you know, um, and are ordained teaching or ruling elders. And so we sent two teaching elders, that's myself and Pastor Bill, and two ruling elders, which was you and Paul Gorman, and yeah. then Troy Cash, our, our new pastoral intern, came with us. Um, and that meant that you guys were, we were all voting delegates. Yeah, on, so a commissioner is basically a voting delegate yeah. sent there. Yeah, and one of the things we mentioned even that our congregation may not be aware of is while churches are typically led by pastors, sometimes solo church pastors or multiple pastors are on a church staff, when it comes to our actual church governance using Acts 15, using the different descriptions of an elder in First Timothy in the book of Titus, is we believe the Bible teaches of a parity of elders. And so that was actually on display yeah, in absolutely. the General Assembly. So what does that mean? Yeah, I, I thought it was really neat. Um, again, this was my first General Assembly, so first rodeo of seeing this. But um, parity just meaning that there's uh, we have ruling elders and teaching elders, and there's not one that's greater than the other. Like God has called elders to serve, and we've kind of just for function to divided that up into ruling and teaching, uh, so to speak. But um, both, uh, it's not just oh well, the pastors are really leading this, and the ruling elders are kind of a second class thing. We want. Uh, equality, so to speak, in that. And so I think at the assembly, uh, one of the things that struck me was just how many of those who spoke on the floor and, you know, made arguments or made presentation um, were ruling elders. Yeah. Um, and that shouldn't be surprising in the grand scheme, but I guess just since it was my first time there, first yeah. time seeing it, uh, that was uh, instructive. You could tell when a ruling elder, because when a, when a brother would stand to speak on the floor, he says his name ruling elder so-and-so from such-and-such church. So we always know. Yeah. Um, some of those guys got to be gifted lawyers or something like that. Because, <laughs> like, if a guy said ruling elder and then just blew it out of the park as far right. as just, I understand this this language. Right. I know how to present things. Yep. I'm persuasive. It was pretty amazing. <laughs> and, then, and some of them could speak very succinctly and solve the issue. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, you know. And I need to acknowledge, I've been going to General Assembly probably 15 of my 20 years as a pastor. I'm still succeeding at not speaking on the floor of General Assembly. <laughs> so just want that to so be far. declared. Maybe yeah. next year. Yeah. So a uh, couple more things about our polity, just in yep. case people that don't uh, have awareness and are listening. So as a Presbyterian church, the, the, the root of Presbyterian is the Greek word presbyteros, which means elder. Um, and so fu we function in courts of the church. You have the local church session. You have presbyteries, mm -hmm. gatherings of elders in a region. And then you have our general assembly. 
Our General Assembly, I think, has 91 presbyteries, I believe. I think Seems that's right. right. Close. And um, we had about 2,300 or so ruling and teaching elders present. Uh, that's not all of them that are in our denomination, right. but that was the largest the gathering there's ever been. Yeah. There's ever been. And um, the church is a grassroots church, however. So we issues of conflict resolution or issues of judicial cases... They always start at a grassroots level and rise the way up to the top. So we listen to some reports on things like that. Uh, but so even any overture, any amendment, any idea that needed to be discussed by the church, it doesn't come to that court of the church having started there. It yeah. always starts at a lower level. So you have yeah. local churches that say, hey, I believe our denomination needs to be thinking about this issue. They present that to their presbytery. Their presbytery has to vote on that overture, and that overture works its way up. And so I can't remember exactly how many overtures there were, maybe 40, 45. Somewhere but one of the main things we do is we hear reports from different agencies of the church, but we also, kind of the big deal, is to have overtures presented um, in the business part yep. of the meeting. Yeah. Maybe I'm jumping ahead of things. So well, uh, the church just, business is conducted. Right. That's the main thing. Yeah, I was just gonna add, um, man, it left me a second ago. I was gonna add, here we go, that um, it's not uh, and this is you know, I didn't grow up well, neither of us grew up in a Presbyterian church. Um, but it's not a hierarchical thing where um, kind of the, there's people whose position is at the top and then there's kinda pastors under them or area pastors and the pastor under them. The General Assembly is a gathering of elders from All every church. Churches. I mean, not every church was there, you know, but every church elder in the PCA is invited to this. And mm-hmm. so it, it really is a general, broad assembly. Um, and so the decisions that are made there are from representatives from every church. Yep. Um, I think that's just a helpful note in Absolutely. the world. So Absolutely. Beautiful. Um so yeah, and, it, and we wrote this down just before that we want to, I guess, talk about three different categories and maybe some other things as well. But just the, the fellowship uh, that takes place at General Assembly, there's some teaching and uh, kind of resourcing, equipping type of stuff. And then there's the business and governance, the polity side of it as well. Um, so I don't know. Any of those you want to tackle first? Well, it just was a sweet time to go with five brothers. Yeah. The fellowship was great. And I, from the very beginning, whether it was the car ride or... We found out our hotel had this really nice rooftop bar restaurant at the top, and we could just go sit on the 15th story and actually feel a breeze in Birmingham <laughs> and just enjoy it. It's um, great. It's not a mountain sunset, but it was pretty cool to get there. Yep. Like, wow, this is nice. So, just had a, I think we had a great time. Yep. I don't know how you felt about that. Yeah, no, I, I, I told somebody yesterday, Sunday, um, just, I mean, we had just the five of us, and we basically ate almost every meal together. So, I mean, we're having two meals together for five days. Uh, like there's a lot of enjoyment and conversation and fellowship that just kind of happened uh, through that. that great. So I, I thoroughly enjoyed that and uh, was glad for Troy to be there as well. Just just kind of jump in with two feet. Um, and the other side of the fellowship I thought was um, just getting to see old friends or yeah. you know folks that we don't necessarily see every day. And so for me, one of those uh, was Josh Adair, who some of those listening will yeah. know who that is. He and his family used to attend here. Went to Columbia and then now we're down in Hattiesburg and um, just to catch up with that brother and uh, hear how things are going for, for them. And he's, I don't know, nine months into a new pastoral role. So I hear about that and just, it, it was sweet to, to catch up and, and talk. Yeah. I know you got to see friends. I uh, saw an old friend. Well. In fact, it was a friend Bill and I took to dinner last year and he's just in a discouraging place in ministry and, and not that there's any mistakes or any, you know, 
grievous sin or anything like that, but he's in a very tiny church that's functionally, maybe maybe he's their last pastor. Yeah. Kinda, is that what's going to happen? But ran into him and he said, Jim, you won't believe it. We've had three families visit and stay at our church and one of them has kids. Yeah. And I remember being a pastor of a tiny church and just thinking through just that encouragement. Yeah. Um, and I, I mean, I'm super encouraged by what God's doing at Christ Community. But when you have a gathering of pastors and elders from local churches, you realize there's a lot of churches that have just been hit really hard over the last few years. Um, there can be pastors that are coming and need to report on disunity and discouragement. But for me personally, having had dinner with a guy who was discouraged a year ago and to see a, just a little countenance lift and to say, Jim, three families came, yeah. visited, stayed, some have joined our church Three families to a yeah. church of 20 people is like huge, <laughs> you know? And I was yeah. so happy yeah, with him. So there were some neat moments of fellowship where you just got to just just catch up with someone. And then one of the nights of fellowship that was so fun for me was Troy, AJ, and I, um, we went to the, the party R- crashers. Yeah, we were party crashers. We, we went to the RTS, Reformed Theological Seminary, Charlotte's uh, Gathering for Graduates, which is interesting because um, none of us have graduated from there. Yeah, and AJ, only one of us yeah. has attended there. Yeah, that's where Troy's doing his classes. AJ's doing his classes at a different campus, and I did not go to that seminary. And so, um, But a friend said, no, you guys should come because you'll see old faces. And so one of the highlights of the week for me was I got to introduce AJ to an old friend who Corey and I met in Wittenberg, Germany uh, during seminary. And uh, it was a tough time in our marriage and our life. And so for Derek to account back to me what it was like to meet almost 20 years ago, yeah. And for AJ to know parts of that story, but not all of them, and to realize my worlds were colliding um, on a rooftop in Birmingham, that was pretty cool. Yeah, that was, uh, that was, I've heard you, Jim, talk about that uh, time several times, but it was neat to get to hear both you and him kind of banter. reminisce and yeah. banter about that. And the, the other neat thing from that night was we got to meet a guy, a pastor in Charlotte who uh, is from Bristol, went to King yeah. University. And, or King College, I guess, at the time. But he shared about one of the other pastors in our presbytery coming to King, leading him in Bible study, meeting him, discipling him. It was just yep. it was neat to have uh, that, that encouragement. So, That's great. Um, so, yeah, lot, lots of—I would just say, for me, it was very refreshing on the, the relational side. Fellowship side, yeah. Um, and then, you know, there's, there's seminars and teaching uh, at General Assembly. And so the, the first day, really before the assembly officially starts— They've got different seminars, and so we kind of split up and went to different things um, and got to enjoy those. Uh, each night, uh, so Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday night, there's a worship service um, as part of General Assembly, and, and you'll see not only the commissioners and kind of the regular guests, but families will come to that as well. Um, and so we got to, to sing. Uh, we got to go through a worship liturgy, uh, which was great. And then here, they, they had a different sermon uh, being preached each night. So that was great as well. Yeah. Yeah, the teaching was encouraging. I think um, the seminars, uh, one thing we laughed about ourselves is I th- we think it's easier to write a great seminar description on paper than it is to actually maybe lead a great seminar. Some of us had struck out of, in some of the ones we went to, but uh, the goal is for a just a wide variety of teaching offerings to be given to yep. pastors. And so you just kind of select, hey, there's a dozen different things you can choose from during yep. this hour. Come to one if you want. They're not mandatory. So they can be real edifying. Um, when Kevin DeYoung preached Thursday night, that was one of the highlights too for me. It was just, he chose a text. I even used it Sunday in our own service. I mentioned it. Second uh, Corinthians 5, Paul talks about, we don't regard anyone according to the flesh anymore uh, for we are new creations in Christ, right? Mm-hmm. But the way Kevin DeYoung 
just the way his introduction was very profound to me. Yeah. Of just the issue of our age is anthropology. Um, you know, we're used to identity confusion and such. And so for the church to speak with clarity on not, not just who is God and a doctrine of God, but what is man and what is being, um, what does it mean to know who we are? Yeah. Uh, anthropo- anthropological questions. This is very helpful. Um, he, of course, like Kevin DeYoung would, he couched it in sort of a very educated, sophisticated um, introduction that really caught us. But yeah. that was helpful to yeah. me to think through how important it is in pastoral ministry to be anthropological in our teaching yeah. and, and have to go the extra mile to explain where we as Christians believe our, our, our own understanding of man yeah. and identity comes from. So that was helpful. Yeah. And I, I thought, I mean, his, his challenge or uh, exhortation, I guess, from that to um, not regard others according to the flesh. And, you know, when we see another Christian, whether we uh, tend to like them or not, or whether... <laughs> don't you know, size me up. Like, you don't know me. Like we, we're, we're called <laughs> as believers to not size them up according yeah. to worldly in our natural way of doing that, but to see them as a brother in Christ. Um, yeah. And that, I mean, that just has a ton of ramifications. And then, and so he exhorted us to do that for others, but then also think about ourselves, that, that our conception of ourself is as a new creature, part of the new creation in Christ. And so, Absolutely. Uh, just, I mean, there's a lot to think about and uh, take home from that. So, um, so yeah, the, the third thing we wanted to mention was just the business governance polity side, which is, I mean, that's what the that's it's kind of the main event <laughs> of General Assembly. It's it's a it is a governance meeting, and uh, there's lots that goes into that. But uh, in that, I mean, we get to hear reports. Uh, we get to hear from these different agencies, as as Jim mentioned, kind of different arms of the church, and uh, then there's several things that we vote on, um, and so we just wanted to share some of the more significant. Yep or impactful things from that? There's not there's not a lot of major huge ones. Um, there's a gajillion things voted upon, to be yeah. honest with you. Yeah. Uh, but the ones that were major, I think they were important, and I think it's good to have a little contextual description for those listening. So let me do the, the first one that um, was the PCA decided to step out of the National Association of Evangelicals. Yeah. Um, and that was a neat a neat debate to listen to because the PCA not only has been involved in the NAE for a long time, uh, but has been like chairing it and leading it as a sort of a theological think tank that's helped American evangelicalism. Um, And so evangelical ultimately would just be a broad description of those who believe the gospel and they believe in the inerrancy authority uh, of, of the word of God, that mission is what our calling is until the day we are worshiping him and mission is not needed. Um, but the NAE over the course of time has had more and more denominations leave it and uh, used to be, I think, more important than obviously it's been determined to be now for the PCA, which is uh, gather, uh, an association of like-minded denominations that come together and agree on the major tenets of the gospel and even on mission. And ultimately, the PCA voted to step away from our role in the NAE for, I think, probably two reasons I would give. One is we've, we're a large enough entity to kind of be our own association now. Uh, and that, that probably early on in the days of the NAE, the PCA was, was really dependent on being seen as a reformed evangelical denomination that was preaching the gospel. And the NAE helped kind of give a little bit of credence to that Um you know, that, that reality, that identity. Um, another 
and that's not as needed now, would be the, the vote. Another reason is there are so many social issues of our day that the evangelical church does not agree on and maybe doesn't even want to make a stance on, a statement on, because it might distract from the centrality of the gospel that we preach. Uh, you can think of an unlimited number of issues. We may agree on them, but not speak about them in the same way, for example. Mm-hmm. What happens if the NAE comes out and makes a statement about critical race theory or about transgender identity or about LGBTQ or about climate change? Or does the yeah. PCA, if we have a chair at the NAE, uh, do we endorse that implicitly? Do we not agree with it? What happens? So ultimately, I think the assembly voted to say, now is probably a good time to step away from that. I think that's just an important thing for our congregation to to know why that yeah. that vote happened. Yeah, and I'll uh, just to add, there, there's a another kind of group of churches. Um, I'm struggling with the acronym right now of Reformed churches. Napark. Napark, which is National, National Association of Presbyterian, Reformed Presbyterian yeah. Churches, something like yeah. that. Um, and we're we're part of that uh, that collective uh, kind of association. There are no other Napark churches. In NAE, um, and so just, I, I think that's a yeah. I don't know. Maybe our denomination's not broadly seeker sensitive in the way we um, you know we approach mission. I mean, there's a lot of differences that we would have in philosophy of ministry that would just diverge from maybe many other churches in the in the NAE. NAE. And yeah. so, um, yeah. So we'll see. That would be finalized next year. Yeah. So um, so what happens? Okay. So we voted. Uh, the majority voted to leave the NAE. This now, assembly. Now, what happens from what here? happens next for any overture that passes is it now needs to pass two thirds of presbyteries. presbyteries, and then it needs to be voted again a majority next year. Yeah, that might be true. I could be wrong. That's definitely true for an overture that changes the book of church order. Oh, okay. That's I right. want to yeah. make sure this is not an overture that changed the book of church order. So I don't oh, know probably... if that's the case. So yeah, this is that. why this podcast is so much fun. We will still tell you <laughs> even what we don't know. Well, I think you're right. I think that's just for. Book I know of it's true order. for book of church order, but yeah. um, so I think the PCA is now done and left the yeah, NAE because yeah. it's not a it's not yeah. changing our constitution, which requires a second ratification process. Yeah. So. Yeah. Um, anything else on that? No. Um, one of the other things I'll mention um, is, uh, I guess it was early early on in the assembly, um, one of the things that we heard was a from a study committee report. Uh, so last last year at the General Assembly, I think, was when uh, the assembly voted to f- have a committee formed about the uh, subject of abuse and to study that over the year and come back with a report this year. Yep. Is that right? And so the way that works in our denomination is that report doesn't have any constitutional bearing on how a local church needs to perform with regards to a situation, but it's looking at the scriptures, it's looking at an issue, it's looking at um, even legal things that we need to know about um, when it comes to a particular issue. So like two years ago, I believe two years ago, uh, there was a commission formed to study biblical sexuality in light of just our changing culture and the terminology, etc. And that report was received, and it's giving guidance to local churches and how they navigate yeah. issues related to sexuality. Um, this was about abuse. It yeah. would be about how should the church be responding to an accusation of abuse? Um, what does it look like to respond to child abuse or yeah. sexual abuse? Um, and so it was just... Met with acclamation, to be honest yep. with you. It was yep. a very good report. Um, interestingly enough, I, I knew one of the counselors from CCF. She used to attend the church 
that I was a church planter out of in Pennsylvania. So it was neat to see her. Yeah. Uh, she's a counselor. So this committee that wrote the report was a, co- a combined uh, committee of teaching elder pastors, ruling elders. One was a physician, a doctor. Then you have people who are abuse survivors as well as biblical counselors all came together. They were part of a committee and they presented their report. And uh, yeah. again, it's, it doesn't give any constitutional demand to local churches. It's interpretive in assisting churches in applying yeah, scriptures as well as our book of church order. It's, it's essentially a resource uh, that should be to our benefit. And um, it's j- just for a sense of things, it's over 200 pages. Um, so just consider, you know, 10 to 15 uh, people on this committee who met for the year, did a lot of work, a lot of research, a lot of conversations, a lot of looking at scripture um, and put together 200 pages really to resource local churches and presbyteries about, um, and then they've got sections on domestic abuse, uh, sexual abuse, child abuse, uh, spiritual uh, abuse. And uh, I'll just add, I don't, I don't even know if, I don't think you were on this, but one of our deacons actually saw this a couple weeks ago and emailed it. Uh, and I don't know if you were on that, but emailed it to several of uh, us elders and just said, like, hey, th- this just came out and we need to, you know, read through it and, and see how, really see what benefit, uh, not see if it does have benefit, but like, let's, let's use this as beneficial for our church. Um, and so just thankful, um, that we've got deacons who are thinking about this, you know, even before, uh, we were there. So, um, a lot, just a lot of, uh, information and resources there for us. So it's good. No, I'm very thankful for it. And it was well received. Um, and then, uh, the big, I mean, is there anything? No, we had I, some overtures about sexuality, which is kind of a big right. Issue over the last so the, about anything before that, f- four or five overtures got lumped together in that critical area. No, I, I don't think that there's there's other other major overtures that would involve just regular discussion. Yeah. Um, outside of things that were associated with boundaries of presbyteries and different pol- polity approaches when it comes to hearing, um, you know. Not accusations, but being able to appeal, you know, what's the process right. of appeal if someone doesn't agree with what a church court has done. So there was stuff like that, but that's, again, mostly that's just the ins and out of our government structure. Yeah. Uh, but probably the biggest votes of the entire assembly were about the issue of sexuality, uh, particularly homosexuality. Um, and to be clear, it, they were not votes about biblically orthodox understanding of mm-hmm. sexual purity, sexual sin. We have the New Testament, the Old Testament, the Scripture. So it wasn't about what do we believe the Scripture teaches on these issues. Yeah. What it was about was we had multiple overtures regarding what will be requirements when it comes to semantic self-description for yeah. elders and for pastors yeah. in our denomination. Um, so that, that that's a really important thing because... In a denomination like the PCA, for example, um, if if there's a different semantic of how one describes themselves who struggles with sexual temptation, it could be heterosexual temptation, it could be homosexual temptation. Um, it's more frequent in the you know side B Christianity, which is a d- description of those who would be more inclined to describe themselves as a gay Christian uh, uh, or as opposed to saying I am a Christian who struggles with same-sex attraction, mm-hmm. but someone who basically says I'm a celibate gay Christian. It's what I am. It's what I struggle with, and that's an identity marker that I have. Ultimately, we had a handful of overtures were saying 
we understand that there are different semantical descriptions as to the struggle and there's different participatory you know experiences for those who are celibate saying notice sexual sin but they are still defined by that desire or at least they, they, they communicate like they are there there are two sides in our denomination it seems there are some who say that is absolutely out of conformity to colossians chapter 3 mm-hmm. i think it's colossians 3 5 anyway that just i read it sunday um yeah, three. Three, yeah. Just a description of, you know, evil desires. We need to repent of our desires, not just yeah. our acting upon those desires. And there are others that seem to be on more the side B Christianity which, with more um, semantic um, acceptance of that description of the identity. And so we essentially had some votes that were about how will we examine and yeah. who will we allow to Who's, be elders, yeah. officers in the church. Yeah. So yep. you can unpack, maybe we have two overtures we thought we'd bring up. Yeah, yeah. So one was uh, Overture 29, um, and it uh, it was aff- voted in the affirmative. Um, and so just, I guess, a quick aside to our earlier conversation, these overtures, which do introduce changes to our Book of Church order, which is our Constitution, so these are constitutional changes, they have to be voted in the majority at a General Assembly then they get ratified in the presbyteries. Almost think about being ratified by the states, if that's helpful. They get ratified by the presbyteries, but two-thirds of presbyteries have to ratify that. And then that comes back to General Assembly next year and needs a majority vote as well. Right. So lots of hurdles to change yeah. the Constitution. But anyways, um, Overture 29, uh, it introduces language into Chapter 16 of our Book of Church Order. And it's, it's about officers. And you said this, but these are, are things... These overtures are about officers in the church. They're not about non-Christians, and they're not about even just Christians who are not officers. These are about the the, the office of elder and deacon. And so um, I'll just read this, and, and we can say what we want. But it says, Officers in the, in the PCA must be above reproach in their walk and Christ-like in their character. While office bearers will see spiritual perfection only in glory, they will continue in this life to confess and to mortify remaining sins in light of God's work of progressive sanctification. Therefore, to be qualified for office, they must affirm the sinfulness of fallen desires, the reality and hope of progressive sanctification, and be committed to the pursuit of spirit-empowered victory over their sinful temptations, inclinations, and actions." As many said from the floor, it's hard to think of any pastor disagreeing with that statement. Um, right. <laughs> why is it there and why wasn't it there before? Well, what's going on right now is is the importance of, of when we examine an incoming officer uh, or just even our, the importance of being able to say that being an under-shepherd in Christ church comes with continually needing to acknowledge that the remaining corruption of our flesh must be put to death. And that not just my acting out of this, the struggles that I have, but the, the fact that I desire things I shouldn't desire must mm-hmm. be repented of. Mm-hmm. And so it, th- the important thing of this overture is it doesn't name any specific sins. Right. right. It simply says that we must be willing to repent of sinful desires yep. and inclinations. That yep. would be Colossians 3 again. Yeah. Uh, there's things that... We want that we should not want. Yeah. There's things we desire that are outside of the bounds of God's design and is good. And you'd think we wouldn't have to say that, but the reason that that's even there, it's, it's important that it's not naming any particular sins, is that there are, um, there are definitely 
semantically describes sins where people have said publicly, pastors in our denomination have said publicly, like, this is what I am. Yeah. This is what I will struggle with until the day I die. Yeah. And that's been heard by others who put proposals like this forward to say, no, we're new in Christ. We shouldn't say that. Yeah. Yeah. And so if you just pick some other categories, like I'm a greedy Christian or I'm an angry, uh, slandering Christian. Like that, that just, it doesn't, yeah, it doesn't sit right. Yeah. I will always covet those wealthier than I, what they have. And that's what I am. And that's how I experience my Christianity is through that struggle. Yeah. That's always going to be there. Yeah. What this overture is saying, no, if you're a minister in the gospel, you do not define yourself that way, nor should you be shepherding people that way to say, yep, that's kind of what you are until the day Jesus returns. You're stuck in that. Yeah. That's what we're saying in this overture was we don't want leaders in the church to have that grid by which they do biblical shepherding. Yeah. In fact, it's the other, which is I'm putting this to death and by God's grace, I'm pursuing victory over it. Absolutely. And and just to, to jump out of kind of the polity side of this into kind of everyday Christian life, um, I mean, it's not uh, crazy to think about different conversations that we may have with others, whether they be Christians or not, where you kind of get into the, the field of is, is it sin when you act upon something or is it sin before that simply at the stage of desiring something um, and, or, or thinking, you know, you think about it, you desire it, you're like, when does it become sin? And uh, that, that kind of undergirds this. And I, I mean, I think there's, there's a couple things that could be helpful from this um, for us. One is that in, in God's sanctification of us, he doesn't simply want us to stop acting sinfully. His aim that he will accomplish is that we will not desire sin. And that, mm-hmm. I mean, like, I, I, I need to remember that hope um, that... There will, there will come a day, and that, that day is going to come when we will not have any desires that are sinful. Right. And that's... So, so in other words, when you, if, if, if this goes through and passes, when we examine incoming pastors, or when I look at my own description according to our Constitution, it is not okay to have a pastor who's just a resigned repenter of yeah. sins. Yeah. I just resign myself. This is my struggle. There's hope and forgiveness in the gospel, but I resign myself to this struggle. Right. No. We're saying we want brothers in the gospel who are saying there is power to put to death what is earthly in you. Yeah. And repenting of my desires that connect with earthly worldly things, I, I'm i anticipating yeah. freedom yeah. of replacing oppression. Yeah. So anyway, I think that's a super encouraging amendment. Uh, it's just an addition. Didn't yeah. subtract anything. It just adds right. better language to describe that. And the uh, one more thing I'll say, just kind of for us day to day, so to speak, is that uh, sometimes people will say something like, um, "It's it's only sin," or it, it, this is maybe more commonly not Christians than Christians. So it's only wrong if it hurts somebody. You know, if this thing isn't wrong because who's being hurt by it? And you can make that argument of like, "Oh, these are just my desires. These are just my inner thoughts. Is it? It's not hurting anybody." Um, but no, God says that that is sin, and that that must be repented of and, and mortified and he's given us his spirit so that we can turn from those things and, and you know we could look at all sorts of scriptures but to, to me it's most simple just to go back to the 10th commandment of don't covet uh, and it's it like <laughs> coveting is a desire it's not yep. not something different than that it may lead you to the, some of the other commands but um, 
I'll just just want to add that in there. Amen. Well, I mean, it's not saying that we will see every sinful desire mortified right. because we can't be perfect. Right. But what it is saying is we don't operate as Christians who say, I'm stuck in this. We don't settle. And, no, yeah. no. Um, God may or may not fully rescue me from the desires that assault me, but you know what? I'm going to live with a pursuit. Yeah. Prayerful that the Holy Spirit would make my desires conform more to the image and will of God yeah. as opposed to yeah. my corrupt nature. So I think that's very encouraging. Um, and so then let me connect this to the last one we'll share, which yeah. is the biggest one. Um, this Overture 29 was referenced as being the answer to four or five other overtures about sexuality and saying, hey, instead of naming sexual sin as something that sexual sinful desire that, that pastors yeah. ought not be naming at all or defined by. Um, let's have this be the answer, more of a general theological mm-hmm. answer. Yeah. Well, what happened was in Overture 15, there was a minority report that came forward that says, no, the issue of our day is homosexuality and transgenderism. It's an ideology of our world. Yeah. And we should not just have a general theological answer that responds to the issue of our day. We need a very clear issue of our day so that our denomination knows that pastors in our denomination, elders in our denomination, um, do not define themselves as being stuck in mm-hmm. the cultural expression of desires or the personal experience of desire of a sin that Jesus came to suffer and die for. Yeah. So let's make it very clear. So yeah. why don't you read what was, this was passed, yeah. um, and it'll take, again, a ratification process, but this was passed for officers in the church. Yeah. So this is Overture 15, and this adds language to a book of church order in, in 7.4. And, and chapter 7 is, is really just about general classifications of officers. Um, and so it, it reads as this, Men who describe themselves as homosexual, even those who describe themselves as homosexual and claim to practice celibacy by refraining from homosexual conduct, are disqualified from holding office in the PCA. Okay. So, men who describe themselves, in other words, by their own declaration are saying, I am a gay Christian. Um, this overture would say that individual is not fit for office in the PCA. No. Because, and again, there was debate on both sides, uh, because 1 Corinthians 6 says, such were some of you. Yeah. But that's not your identity anymore at all. There's no sin that clings to you when it comes to your identity. We regard no one according to the flesh anymore. Right. Second Corinthians 5, you're a new creation in Christ. Yeah. This is back to that anthropology question. Right. What yeah. makes me what I am? If you're a Christian, the righteousness of Christ is what you're defined by. The identity of Christ in you, the hope of glory, is what's defined by. you're defined by. So if you define yourself as... A homosexual Christian, which is, is, is an issue of our day, um, our denomination passed by, it was a narrow margin, 50 yeah. votes, to be honest with you. At first, it was 50 votes to make it the, major, the, the, the main motion, and then it was about 55-45 uh, percentage-wise, finally, yeah. um, that this would be added to our Book of Church order. Yeah. Now, some of the reason people voted strongly against this is because it singles out one sin. Yeah. Um, why would we say that? I mean, people describe themselves as an alcoholic all the time. Yeah. Um, why isn't that going to be? Are we going to just have an increasing number right. of particularly listed sins? Um, and so as the debate kind of raged or went back and forth, one thing that I think stood out to me was 
for four years straight, the PCA has had overtures about this, about the semantic mm-hmm. of describing oneself as a homosexual Christian. Yeah. Um, and we haven't really ended up having any votes go through. Yeah. And so by virtue of the fact that it keeps coming up year after year, I think probably what caused some of the vote to tip in the direction of, of, of this amendment was it is the issue of our day. Yeah. The issue of celebrating sex in a, outside of God's design, the issue also of connecting it to Christianity is, is not uncommon in our culture. Yeah. So will we speak with unequivocal clarity? Um, and it was a pretty heavy vote against because I think folks would say, well, this is very unloving to those who are, are just trying to be honest that this is what the, the, the desire they struggle with the most. Yeah. Um, but it doesn't remove someone from serving in the church who says, I really, this is my, this is a struggle that I struggle with. Yeah. But yeah, it's not saying, but by the reality of you having a temptation, a certain temptation, you're disqualified. No, not not at all. That's not what this is saying. No, not at all. It's saying if you describe yourself by that sin or by that temptation, you might say, like that's the, it's, it's the (laughs) anthropology, it goes back to that. It's the anthropology of it. Um, were you gonna say something? Else? Well, two things. One is it is it is it is it lack of wisdom to use it, or is it actually a denial of the gospel? That's right. what was at stake in the debate. Uh-huh. So That's maybe good, someone good would question. say, "Well, I, if I call myself a homosexual Christian, I'm not saying that I'm that those two descriptors are equal. I'm a Christian. I'm just describing my struggle." Okay, maybe that's unwise language. But the other side of the debate said, "No, actually, it's a denial of what Christ has come yeah. to accomplish in you." You can no longer describe yourself like that. And I think that's where I would stand. Yeah. I know that's where our, our elders yeah. voted. Um, yeah. So, any other thoughts on that? Um, man, there's something I was going to say a second ago. Keep talking and I'll see if it comes back. Well, what yeah. I was going to do is, I don't know who listens to these podcasts. And so I was going to be oh. very clear to say, this is a description of officers. But I hope that anybody, who, you know, we have same-sex attracted people in our congregation. I hope that I have same-sex attracted friends in the community around. And they know where I stand on believing that God has designed a sexual ethic for our good and for his glory. But I I know that this is thought of as just going to make the PCA look homophobic and like we're a bunch of haters. And I would just simply say the emphasis is on the love of God given to us in Christ who suffered and paid for all of our sin and yeah. gives us a new identity. And it is, is a gospel of love and sacrifice for all sin that Jesus did for, you know, you and me, for our corruption. And so I I don't think that anybody would ever know that this motion passed at the General Assembly by how you, AJ, or me, Jim, treat someone that we meet who's Mm -hmm. same-sex attracted. I don't walk up to people and say, I want to talk to you about your sexual identity, and I can't believe you described yourself (laughs) by that. But if someone says, Jim, what do you think about sexual ethics in our world? I should have a biblical answer. Yeah, yeah. And then if someone in that dialogue says, so do you think it's okay for someone to call themselves a homosexual Christian? I know many people, not in our church, but who do call themselves a homosexual Christian. It's a great chance for me to say, how do you square that with parts of the scripture that say you're not that anymore if you're in Christ? Christ died for that sin, therefore you you can't be that or call yourself that. Well, now I've just gone into evangelism, and I hope I'm not doing that as a hater or an angry Mm -hmm. conservative. Right. No. But in our denomination, what happened at 
the Birmingham Assembly was simply saying a motion passed that was going to make it more clear for how officers in the church will speak about their struggle with any form of sexual sin, particularly same-sex attraction. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, I think the, you said this, but just the short answer for why, why would we, why do we think this is needed? It's because of our context. Like the past four years, and you could say even broader than that, but the four years specifically for the PCA have, have shown to us that we think this is a necessary thing, a beneficial thing in our constitution. Um, Another thought is uh, going back to what you were saying of you know if we if we talk with somebody you meet somebody and they describe themselves as a homosexual Christian or whatnot uh, I think one thing and asking questions I, I just want to ask like what do you mean by that um, and get to hear because they could mean a couple different things and you kind of want to hear what's underneath those words um, but another thing is I don't know if there's any other sin that gets that kind of a Usage. Uh, I don't know if there's any other sin that in our context, Christians in our generally would describe themselves with. And you, I, I would, you know, might even ask somebody who would say that, like, well, what are some of your other sins you struggle with? Have you ever called yourself a <laughs> a lying Christian or a a coveting Christian, or you know, whatever else they're going to say? And my, my guess is probably not. But for some reason, homosexual Christian has become this thing in our day and age. And so, um, for some reason. I think well, the, the reason is <laughs> a, you know, se- a yeah. secular religion yeah. has descended upon us. Yeah. Um, but uh, anyway, yeah. So when, when I do a podcast with you like this, we did it last year. I was like, man, this makes me nervous because I don't know who's listening. <laughs> if it's our congregation <laughs> and people. It's great. But it's not something to be ashamed of. Yeah, right. Uh, essentially, what is your authority and what do we believe that it says about sins for which Christ came to die? Yeah. And it says we've died to them. Yeah. And if the Bible clearly says this is one of the sins you've died to, then when we live in a context and a culture where people will semantically describe their Christianity by the struggle they have, or and, and sadly, I mean, not, but some don't think it's a struggle. Some actually would say it's, it's mm-hmm. just love and yeah. Christianity jives well with that. Yeah. This is why our denomination voted it to kind of draw yep. a line in the sand. And so, um, yep. again, it has to be approved by two-thirds of the Presbyterians. It's got to be approved next year. Uh, but I would still hope that if anybody walked into our church today and said, I want to talk to you about this struggle, that person would understand where we believe the Bible's clear, yeah. but would not feel one iota that there was not love, not respect, yeah. not kindness, not direct engagement um, with humility. Right, right. Because we're sinners saved by grace. Yeah. And one other thing I'll say is, um, I think is there can be, and I haven't seen anything this year, but there can be kind of news reports or articles or different things that come out following a vote that that may <laughs> indicate things that I don't think are quite accurate. And, and just, just just as an example, a couple of years ago, I don't know, we voted. Uh, the Nashville statement was written, and then as a general assembly, we voted of whether to. To adopt it, or adopt, from, yeah. adopt it, and I don't know, sixty, seventy percent in the positive, something like that. I think, and um, there were some who said after that, like, "Man, look, thirty percent of the PCA disagrees with the Nashville statement." That's quite simply just not accurate to what's going on. And so, well, I guess what I want to point out with this, because uh, we said, you know, fifty-five, sixty percent, something like that, ended up affirming this, um, but 
when we when a, when an overture comes to us, especially like a book of church order language um, overture, like we've got to think first. Well, do I agree with this? Like, are the words in this accurate to biblical teaching? Um, I think with this, like, yeah, like that's a pretty clear thing. But then you got to ask also, is this the right overture? Is it in the right spot of the book of church order? As an example, that argument was made that this isn't in the right spot of the book of church order. Um, I ultimately think it's in a good spot, but others thought differently. Um, but you know, you got to think: do is this a thing worth, or is this the right thing to change our book of church order on? And so, some people could totally agree with this statement, but vote down the overture because they don't think that it's the right time. And maybe as an example, if this overture was introduced three years ago, I don't know if we would have, if, if I, and I wasn't even there at the time, but would have affirmed it or not because the context wasn't as clear that it was as needed. Yeah. Um, and so just want to give, just as you hear the different votes or if you see anything like that, don't necessarily assume that it's a, if everybody that said no disagrees with this statement, they That's just good. didn't think it was the right overture That's right. for what, for you know, variety of reasons. Yep. So that's yeah, very, very good. Yeah, I voted against the Nashville statement, even though I affirm what's in it. <laughs> right. I just didn't think more words were needed. Right. The, you know, the Bible and our con- so, but that was a different example. But it's not because I didn't agree with it. That's a great point. Right. Well, and maybe, maybe to close this up, uh, for time's sake, I, I just shared this with some folks on Sunday. So I've got two college kids that are looking for a local church in their own respective community. They may or may not choose to go to a PCA church. They've visited some, and I know Maggie's about to go off for the first time. What church is she going to end up? Corey and I can pray about it, think about it, and give guidance. An overture like this one, what it does do, if it were to pass, is to say that I can have confidence that if my daughter goes to a PCA church in the town she's attending and uh, describes sin struggles or uh, is just receiving pastoral counsel, about any issue, really, um, but particularly in the realm of sexuality, she will interface an elder or pastor who will not communicate to her that there are certain sins that you pretty much are stuck in. Yeah, right. I don't think you can approve that overture and think that there are some sins in which we, we're just pretty much stuck in it. In fact, right. so stuck in it, that's kind of how I describe myself. kind of who you are. Obviously, homosexuality is an example of how that's happened rampantly, but it could be another issue. 10 years from now. I don't know. But this type of an overture is saying, no, no, we cannot, we must not. And in this denomination, the shepherds will not. Yeah. Yeah. And right now there's not clarity on that matter. So therefore my daughters could say, Hey, we found a PCA church we're going to. And it could be a PCA church that actually has a semantic that it uses that Mm -hmm. gives a little bit of permission to stay stuck in something for which the gospel says, God's given us power to rescue not only from the curse and the wrath of God against sin, but also to transform our desires. Yeah. So I do think there's there's some real pragmatic, practical theology things attached to it. So, um, but man, uh, it was a blessing to go. Yeah, yeah, it was great. It's kind of fun to give a report. This is a longer podcast than normal, but hopefully yeah. it makes sense to people. Yeah. And I'll just last thing I'll add is if anybody, especially. In our church, if, if there's anything you have a specific question about or want to follow up with, any of our elders would be happy to uh, chat. Uh, again, Paul, Jim, Bill, myself, and then Troy were the ones who went there. But um, hopefully this answers many questions, but if you have more, we're, we're yeah. here. And I would think also, church members, folks, this isn't wise to share publicly. This is different than some of the sermons we preach because we're just explaining internally something that's in process in our own pr- 
denomination as well as what we're doing in thinking through it. Um, but hopefully it'll be helpful for yeah. you in listening. So we love you. We're thankful that we're a part of an interconnected church that we do believe uh, follows the biblical model, Acts 15. There were different courts in the church back in the New Testament church. So we sought to be obedient last week, but I do praise God that when we come back from General Assembly, we do our labors with one another here in the local church setting. So Amen. thankful Amen. for that. Well, until next year. Yeah. But contextualize coming soon. Yes. So. All right. See you all. Have a good one.